Hey, this is Byron, and I'm the lead pastor here at Redemption Church. Thanks for listening to our weekly sermon podcast. I hope this message blesses you, encourages you, and helps you experience life change through Jesus. For more sermons like this, blogs, resources, or opportunities to get connected, visit us at www.redemptiontx.com. So tonight is going to be a little bit different. If you're new to redemption, our favorite way to preach the Bible here is called expositional preaching. That's the first big college word that you're going to learn tonight. Lots of college words coming your way. And what expositional preaching means is that we like to teach through the Bible, verse by verse, line by line. And so here we are in Mark chapter 10, verse 32 through 34 in a sermon called Jesus and the Cross. It's week 46 of a sermon series through the gospel of Mark that we call the simple gospel. And the reason we call it the simple gospel is because Mark is the simple simple gospel. That out of the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Mark is the clearest, it is the shortest, it is the easiest to be able to understand, and most commentators and scholars would call it the simple gospel. And it's my heart, my hope, it's my prayer that as a pastor, I am able to clearly articulate the gospel in helpful, beneficial, practical, and very simple ways. One of my favorite quotes is that the gospel is simple enough for a child, but it's deep enough for a scholar. What that means is that any one of us, regardless of where we're at, whether we are Christians or not Christians, or whether we're new to faith or we've been following Jesus for a long time, we can read the Bible and we can get something out of it. And we can read it and we can read through Mark and we can say, okay, Well, here's who Jesus is. This is what Jesus did, and this is what it means for us to follow him. The gospel is simple, but at the same time, it's deep. That it's deep enough for a scholar that when a person is filled with the Holy Spirit, the more they read this book, the more they begin to understand, the more they grow, and the more they know. And if you've read this book for any amount of time, you realize that you're just now beginning to understand what it means that you can read it and you will never plummet the depths and the beauty and the wonder and the majesty and the glory that is the gospel. It is simple enough for a child and it is deep enough for a scholar. Charles Spurgeon, he says that the gospel is milk for babes but meat for men. It's the same idea, that it's simple enough for a child but it is deep enough for a scholar. We actually had this happen this week in the Ellis house with my three-year-old daughter, Esther's son. One of our routines that we do is every single night when we're tucking her in bed, we always read the Jesus Storybook Bible. For those of you who are parents, I highly recommend you getting the Jesus Storybook Bible for your kiddos. And we tuck her in and we're cuddling and snuggling and we're getting ready to say our night-night prayers and we read the Jesus Storybook Bible. And when we're done, this week my daughter Esther, three years old, she asked this question. She said, Daddy, why did Jesus have to die? And I thought, baby girl, that is the most important question you will ever ask yourself in your life. And so here I am trying to explain the gospel to a three-year-old. So I'm like, okay, how do I do this? So I tell her, well, okay, Jesus died because he loves you and he dies for your sins. And then she says, daddy, what's sin? And I was like, we are in bigger trouble than I thought. And so now I have to explain not only what death is, now I have to explain sin to a three-year-old girl. That is our role at the Ellis House all this week. So please be praying for me and Ashley. But the gospel is simple enough for a child. And as I was studying and preparing for this message, here's what I realized, is that many of us, we're in the same place that Esther is, that we don't really understand why Jesus had to die. We can say we know what the gospel is. Jesus loves you and died for your sins. Okay, but what does that mean? What does that entail? What does that really truly mean? See, the gospel is simple enough for a child, but at the same time, it's deep enough for a scholar. Do you know what that means, that Jesus loves you enough to die for your sins? See, a lot of us, we're in the same place that Esther is. We don't understand why Jesus had to die. Maybe you're here today and you are not a Christian, and you're wondering, hey, what's this Jesus thing all about? Why does Jesus have to die? What makes what Jesus accomplishes different than any other religion or ideology? You're wondering, why did Jesus have to die? Maybe you're here and you are a skeptic. You're on the line between faith and doubt, and you're trying to figure everything out, and you want to know, why did Jesus have to die? Because it just doesn't make sense. 
Maybe you're here and you've been a Christian. You just signed up to be baptized. You're new to faith. You're fired up. You're excited, but you don't understand everything, and you're just learning to follow after him, but you want to know, why did Jesus have to die? Maybe you're here and you've been a Christian for five years, 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, and what you're understanding is that it is simple for a child, but it's deep enough for a scholar, and the more you know and the more you grow, the more you realize you don't really understand. And so we're asking that question, why did Jesus have to die? And that's the question that I want to be able to answer today. So if you have your Bibles, we're in Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 32, all the way through verse 34. And the sermon is called Jesus and the Cross. And the big idea we're going to be answering is why did Jesus have to die? So I told you we we're going to do something a little bit different. Instead of a sermon, today you're going to get more of a lecture. Okay, I'm going to give you 10 reasons, theological implications of the cross. And so instead of preaching, okay, I'm going to do more teaching. Okay, no guarantee that I will not preach because you've heard my sermons before. <laughs> and so instead of saying, welcome to Redemption Church, what I want to do is I want to welcome you to Redemption School of the Bible. And we're going to dive in deep. We're going to take the simple gospel, and we're going to go deep. We're going to go beyond the surface, and we're going to dive as deep down as we can to be able to take the simple gospel and to see everything that Jesus actually accomplished for us at the cross. So if you have your Bibles, we're in Mark chapter 10, verse 32. I'm going to read it all up front, and then we're going to look at 10 reasons that Jesus had to die. Verse 32, and they. Who's that? That's the disciples. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and they were walking, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed, they were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, Jesus' favorite title for himself, it is a messianic title out of Daniel will be delivered over to the chief priests and to the scribes, and he will be condemned to death and delivered over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, and they will spit on him, and they will flog him, and they will kill him, and three days later, he will rise. Here we find the third in a series of what is known as passion predictions from Jesus, that Jesus is actually prophesying to his disciples what is going to take place in Mark 14 and 15. He is preparing his disciples for a soon coming death, burial, and resurrection. He is letting them know what's going to happen next, what to expect, to prepare their hearts, to prepare their minds. He is letting his disciples know exactly why he has to die. These are the passion predictions of Jesus. In fact, this is the third passion prediction that we've actually covered in the Gospel of Mark. Three times, Jesus pulls the disciples aside, and he begins to explain to them everything that's going to happen in very particular detail. Why would Jesus do that? Because the first times, they didn't understand it. You know, what I've discovered is normally, when it comes to reading sections like this, we just blow right past it. Because it's short, we would just assume that it's really not that important. It's only three verses. Well, what's the really big deal about it? I mean, we already know, so our brains tend to fill in the blanks, and we're reading it, and we'd say, oh, yeah, he was delivered over to the Gentiles. They'll mock him, spit him, flog him, kill him, and after three days later, he will rise. And then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, approached Jesus, and they had a question. We just keep on reading, and we typically move past it. And we forget that Jesus actually pulls the disciples aside three times to be able to communicate this to him. How many of you know if God tells you something one time, it's really important? If God tells you something two times, it's very important. If God tells you something three times, it means you missed it the first time, that you weren't paying attention. And so he comes back around and he tells them again three times, hey, here is why I must die. And they still don't get it. You know, this is the third time that I've actually preached this section of scripture in the Gospel of Mark. You might have missed it the first time. It was in Mark chapter 8 in a sermon called Jesus the Christ, where Peter declares that Jesus is the Christ. And then it was also in Mark chapter 9 in a sermon called Jesus and Humility. And then here we find it again today. And I'll be honest with you, originally, I was just going to skip right past it today and include it in the sermon I'm going to preach next week called Jesus and True Greatness. 
because I thought, well, we've already been in the simple gospel for 46 weeks. If we just slow down every time we hit something, well, we're never going to finish the book. Jesus has come back before Jesus resurrects in the book of Mark, and we're just never going to get out of this series. And so originally, I was going to just move past it, say, hey, let's keep rocking and rolling. Let's get get going. And the Holy Spirit began to convict me as I was studying and I was preparing and I was praying for us as a church. And here's what I felt impressed by the Spirit is that so often you and me, we take the cross for granted. Now, we would never say that, but the way we read the Bible proves that. And the way that we live and the way that we think actually proves that because we just read right past it, mock, condemn, spit upon, crucified, killed. Three days later, he resurrected. Let's just keep going. And normally, sermons about the cross are reserved for Easter Sunday or maybe Good Friday. And then every other week during the year, we just talk about something else. And oftentimes, the cross is taken for granted. When you think about the cross, do you think about the cross the same way that the disciples think about the cross? When you consider the cross, do you consider the cross in the way that the disciples considered the cross? When you understand the cross, do you understand it the way that the disciples would understand it? When you talk about the cross, when you think about the cross, do you think about it in ways that Jesus thinks about the cross? I really don't think that we do. Because here we see that in the teachings over the cross, the disciples have two responses. As Jesus is going up to Jerusalem, what we notice is they are amazed and they are afraid. Now, why would they be amazed? Because it's Jesus. And they've seen Jesus do some incredible, wonderful, and amazing things. We've been with Jesus now in the book of Mark for three years of his ministry. The disciples were called in Mark 1, and they've been with him the entire time. They've seen Jesus preach and teach and heal, cast out demons, perform miracles, walk on water, calm the storm, feed 5,000, feed 4,000, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers. They've seen Jesus do amazing things. But it also says they were afraid. Now, why would they be afraid? Because they don't understand the meaning of the cross. Why are we going to Jerusalem? Jesus, don't you know what they're going to do for you in Jerusalem? Do you remember in Mark chapter 3, after you kind of got into it, the Pharisees, and they begin plotting with the Herodians in an attempt to be able to kill you? Guess where they're at? Oh, they're in Jerusalem. Why are we going to Jerusalem? Do you know what's waiting for you there? Do you know what they do to people like you there? Do you know what they do to revolutionaries like you there? Do you know what they do whenever you proclaim a kingdom that is not Rome? Do you know what they do to people who are like you? That you're going to get a cross. The cross is waiting for you. What are you doing walking headlong into certain death? They were afraid because they didn't understand the cross. They were amazed. Hey, Jesus, could we go heal some more people? I'm pretty sure there's a good sermon you could preach again. Could you do the one about the parable of the soils? Because we really like that one. Can we do that again? Could you feed people? We're getting a little hungry. Can you take a couple of Lunchables and divide it up between a whole bunch of people? I mean, we really like that one. There's more miracles to be done. There's more teaching to be done. There's more people to be healed. Let's go do some amazing things. And Jesus says, no, let's go to the cross. It's time for us to go to the cross. And they were afraid because they didn't understand the meaning of the cross. Listen, Jesus is a healer, but he's so much more than just a healer. Jesus is a teacher, but he's so much more than just a teacher. Jesus does work miracles, but he is so much more than just a miracle worker. See, Mark chapter 1 through 10 takes place in three years Mark chapters 11 through 16 takes place in seven days. Mark really slows down once we hit chapter 11, and the passion prophecies become the passion ministry of Jesus. We're going to spend the rest of the year basically reading about the last days and the final week of Jesus. We're going to learn a lot about the cross. But Mark chapter 1 through 10 was nothing more than the opening act. Mark chapters 1 through 10 was just the opening band. It was just the pregame show. It was just the warm-up. And all of those miracles were really just a preview of the greatest miracle that is waiting in Jerusalem, the cross. Jesus is a miracle worker, but he is so much more than just a miracle worker. He is the promised Messiah who has come to perform the greatest miracle of his death, burial, and his resurrection. And it's waiting for them on the other side of the cross. 
and they still don't understand it. So here's what Jesus does. He pulls them aside on the side of the road. He stops, he sits down with them, and he begins to explain to them. You may not understand it right now, but one day you will. You may not understand everything that's going on now, but one day you will. You may not get it, just like my daughter Esther. She doesn't get it, but one day she will. Many of you, you're just like the disciples, and what I want to do today is I want to stop before we head on any further in the book of Mark, and I want to slow down, and I want to sit down on the side of the road in Jerusalem, and I want us to lean in and look at why Jesus had to die. And so with that being said, if you're taking notes, go ahead, get your pen out, get ready to write, because I want to give you 10 reasons why Jesus had to die. Now, before we get into this, let me, let me explain this to you. There's going to be a lot of big words, so don't worry if you don't spell anything correctly, okay? There is not going to be a test at the end, okay? And if you don't know how to pronounce it, just say it fast, say it bold, and nobody will be able to tell the difference. When you're taking notes, I want you to know after second service, people were walking in the lobby like this because they had hand cramps. It was just too much information for them. Okay, so if you can't get it all, just put the pen down and allow the Holy Spirit just to minister to your hearts. I'm going to give you 10 reasons why Jesus had to die. The simple gospel is going to go deep. Lots of big college words that you can go and impress your friends with. Don't tell them that I never told you anything. Okay, so here we go. 10 reasons why Jesus had to die. Welcome to Redemption School of the Bible. Class is now in session. Reason number one, Jesus is our penal substitutionary atonement. There's your big word for the day. Here we go. What does that mean? Okay, here's what it means. Penal means according to the law. Substitution means taking another's place. And atonement comes from the Hebrew word at one meant. Put them all together. It's becoming one or it's a reconciliation. So here is what penal substitutionary atonement means. That Jesus fulfilled the requirements of the law in our place to make us one with God. Penal substitutionary atonement. Okay? How many of you have noticed that whenever I preach a sermon, I basically say the same thing every single week? Anybody notice that? You're like, Byron seems to repeat himself a lot. Does he forget? No, actually, what I'm doing is really important. I'm teaching you theology. How many of you ever heard me say this? Jesus Christ lived the life that you never could live, the life in your place. Jesus dies the death for you, the death that you deserve because of your sin. Jesus resurrects, giving you new life with him that you could never earn. How many of you hear me say that like every single week? Do you know what that's called? That's called penal substitutionary atonement. I have been teaching you theology, and you did not even know it. Way to go, guys. Y'all are so smart. Penal, substitutionary atonement. Jesus Christ lives the life that you never could live. Jesus dies the death that you deserve, and Jesus resurrects, giving you new life with him both now and forever. That sounds a lot better than saying penal substitutionary atonement every week, doesn't it? Okay, but it is absolutely profound, the implications that this has for the Christian faith. If you take away the penal substitutionary atonement, the Bible falls apart. If you take away penal substitutionary atonement, faith falls apart. The Christian faith falls apart. The cross falls apart. The grave, the grave, it falls apart. Everything that we hold dear to, it all begins to fall apart. Once you take away the substitutionary work of Jesus in our place for our sins, the Christian faith, it completely falls apart. When you take away penal substitutionary atonement, nothing else about Christianity makes sense. This is so important for us to understand what Jesus accomplished on the cross. I think the Apostle Paul says it best when we want to understand the glory of the cross. Here's what Paul says in Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates his love for us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died. Why? For us. Why did Jesus die? For us. Jesus dies for us. It was our sin that nailed him there, but it was his love for us that kept him there. That it was our sin. It was the things that you have done, the things that you have failed to do, your thoughts, your words, your deeds, your actions. It was your sin that nailed him there. Jesus goes to the cross for our sins, and he dies the death for our sins. But it was the love of God that kept him there, so that way we can be forgiven of our sins through him. Jesus Christ is our penal substitutionary atonement, that he received 
the due penalty for our sins, fulfilled the requirements of the law in our place so that way we can be made one with God. That our sins have been forgiven and we have been reconciled into a relationship with the Father. Jesus Christ is our penal substitutionary atonement, which leads into the second point, that Jesus Christ, he is our new covenant sacrifice. In the Bible, the way that God relates to his people is what is known as a covenant, that our God is a relational God. When we look at the Trinity, there is one God in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, equally God, and they are in relationship with one another. Our God, by his very nature, is relational, and then he pursues after us in relationship. And this is how God does it, is through the covenant. The word covenant appears as a mega theme throughout the scripture, and in the Hebrew, it is the loving kindness, or the hased, or the way that my daughter Esther understands it, according to the Jesus Storybook Bible, it is the never giving up, the never ending, the unbreakable, always and forever kind of love. That is the covenant. And the way that God pursues after his people is through this loving kindness, it's through his covenant. The word covenant, it begins to appear all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 with our first parents, Adam and Eve. Back in the garden, Adam and Eve, they had relationship with God. They would walk with him through the cool of the evening. They were one with him. They were in unity with him. But then the serpent comes and deceives them, tricks them. They believe the lie. They sin, they fall, they rebel, and they separate themselves from God. That's what sin is. The prophet Isaiah says sin is separation. That sin is the severing of a relationship. Once Adam and Eve believed the lie and sinned, their relationship with God was severed and separated. And here's how we know. Because when God comes pursuing after them, do you know what they're doing? They're hiding. That's what sin causes you to do. Sin causes you to hide. Sin brings shame. Sin brings separation. Sin brings the end of a relationship. And so they're hiding. And here's what God does. I just love God so much because God, he pursues after them. That God, he comes looking for them. God, he, he comes and he makes a covenant with them to be in relation. He cries out, he says, where are you? And they say, we're hiding. Why are you hiding? Because we have sinned. And so God, he wants to be in relationship. So here's what he does is he makes a covenant and a sacrifice. In Genesis 3.15, we see what is known as the Proto-Evangelium, which is the first gospel, where God, he makes a promise and a sacrifice to Adam and Eve, that he covenants with them, he says, that there will be born another of a woman who will crush the head of the serpent, though he might bruise his heel, he will crush his head. And then he seals this covenant with a sacrifice through the shed blood of an animal, and the covenant becomes sealed. Every covenant that God performs is also followed by a sacrifice. A lot of commentators will say that the sacrifice here was that of a lamb, but it was a perfect sacrifice. God performs the first sacrifice. And then he takes the animal, and then he clothes them over their sin and their shame, and then he sends them on their way with a promise and with a sacrifice, which is the covenant. So the storyline of the Bible moves forward from there with another man. His name is Noah. God makes a promise of a covenant and a sacrifice to Noah that I will never destroy the world with the flood again. And then he kills an animal, sheds the blood. The covenant has been sealed with a sacrifice. That is God's promise to Noah. And then later on in the book of Genesis, we see Abraham. He says, I will make you the father of many nations. And then he performs a sacrifice. There is a covenant and there is a sacrifice. We see the same thing with Moses. As God says, you will become a royal priesthood. And then there is a covenant, and then there is a sacrifice. David, that there is going to come one from you who with a kingdom who will never end. God makes a promise to David, and he seals it with the sacrifice over and over again. And guess what? Every covenant and every sacrifice is pointing towards the coming of the Lord Jesus. In Genesis 3.15, who is the one who is born of a woman who is going to crush the head of the serpent? That's, that's Jesus. Everything in the Bible is prototypical, pointing towards, anticipating, culminating in the coming of Jesus Christ as our new covenant sacrifice. All of the heroes you read about in the Bible, they're really, they're really pointing towards Jesus. But here's the problem. Every single one of those heroes, they failed that they couldn't keep their end of the covenant. 
Adam sinned. Noah sinned. Abraham sinned. Moses sinned. David, he sinned. None of them could fulfill the obligations and the requirements of their covenant. And so the relationship with God has remained severed. But God, he doesn't give up on us. He remains passionate in his pursuit of us. He wants to be in relationship with us. He needs a new covenant for us. And so here's what God does. He sends Jesus fully God, fully man, coming into the world to become our new covenant sacrifice that as fully man, born of a woman, he fulfills the covenant obligations for all of mankind that when we sin, the covenant is not broken. It is guaranteed and secure and it is sure with our reconciliation between him and God because Jesus is the covenant head of all of mankind, but he's also fully God, which means he is passionate in his pursuit with the love loving kindness, the never giving up, the always and forever love. Jesus is fully God. Jesus is fully man. The covenant is sure. And how do we know? Because, well, Jesus also makes the sacrifice through the shed blood of his sins. Jesus, he does it all. He is our new covenant sacrifice. This is why whenever Jesus comes on the scene, John the Baptist looking at Jesus in John 1.29, he sees Jesus and he says, behold, the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. Every covenant needs a sacrifice and Jesus is our new covenant sacrifice. Do you see how the Bible, it all makes sense when you understand the cross? Do you understand the depths and the beauty and the wonder of the cross? This is why the Bible says that before the foundations of the world, the Lamb of God was slain. This is God's heart. This is God's plan. This is God's purpose. This is God's promise to you that Jesus is our new covenant sacrifice. Number three, Jesus is our propitiation. Okay, I want you to think about this. How do you feel when someone sins against you? How does that make you feel? How does it make you feel when someone lies about you, gossips about you, when someone betrays you? How does it make you feel when someone sins against you? Well, it makes you pretty angry, right? How does it make you feel when that person does that one thing that you told them, please don't do that, and they keep doing that over and over and over and over again? How does that make you feel? Over time, pretty angry. And that anger, it tends to build and build and build and build, okay? And then that becomes what we know as wrath, Just so you know, God also has wrath. Now imagine not one person, but every person in the world sinning against you. That's how God feels. See, the psalmist, he'll say that every sin committed is really a sin against God. God has suffered more injustice than anyone in the world. God has suffered more violence than anyone in the world. God has been sinned against more than anyone else in the world. Every sin that has ever been committed is a sin against God. And over time, in all of human history that he has been sinned against, it is building and building and building his anger, his justice, his holy hot righteousness, his holiness, his purity. It continues to build and build and build, and it turns into what is known as wrath. And one day, God's wrath will pour out. People say, no, 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 God is love, God is love. And yes, God is love, but some of you have been lied to. God's wrath is mentioned more times in the Bible than the love of God. The wrath of God is very real. Hell is real. Eternal damnation is very real. Judgment is real. The wrath of God, the wrath of God is very real. And one day that wrath will be poured out on all of the world. So the question is, what do we do? How do we escape the wrath of God? This is why we need the doctrine of propitiation. Propitiation is really the only English word that we have to describe what the Bible teaches about the wrath of God. Here's what propitiation means, to bear the brunt for another. It's a shock absorber. It's someone who receives penalty in another person's place. That is propitiation. So here's what we see that Jesus does. He receives the wrath of God on his shoulders. Here's actually how 1 John writes about propitiation. And this is love. 
Oh, God is love, God is love, God is love. Listen, this is what love is. Love is not just some fleeting feeling that we fall in infatuation and allow us to get away with whatever we want. That is not love. That is immaturity. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that God, he loved us and he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So here's what it means, that at the cross, the wrath of God has been poured out on Jesus Christ. At the cross, we see the wrath of God and the love of God collide in a beautiful display. At the cross, we see the ultimate meaning. We see ultimate reality. At the cross, we see what God intended. We see the wrath of God and the love of God collide with justice, where mercy and justice, kiss and wrath and love collide. And Jesus receives upon himself the full weight of the blast of the wrath of God. This is why in Mark 15, when the crucifixion takes place, the sky turns black. That's a sign of judgment. Jesus receives all of that on the cross. And so here's what it means for us. If you're here today and you are not a Christian, I want you to know you are in danger. You are standing in the path of the wrath of God. You say, well, I'm just, nothing bad's happening. Not yet. You say, well, I'm just, it it seems like it's getting away with stuff. You are not getting away with everything. Every breath you breathe, every day you live, all you are doing is storing up judgment for the day of wrath. Do not mistake God's patience for God's tolerance on your life. You are storing up wrath for the day of judgment. And here is the question for you. On that day when you stand before God, who will propitiate for your sins? Do you think you can handle the weight of the wrath of God? What are you going to do on that day? Will you do it on your own or will you allow Jesus to stand in your place? For those of us who are Christians, here's what propitiation means. There's no more wrath for you. The wrath of God has been satisfied by Jesus So that way when God sees you, he is not punishing you. God sees you and he is pleased with you because Jesus Christ satisfies the wrath of God. There is no punishment for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let me explain this to you. I meet with people all the time as I'm doing counseling and I'm sitting with them. They say, I just feel like God is punishing me. Listen, God is not punishing you if you are in Christ. It would be unjust, it would be unloving, it would be, un, it would be ungodly for God to punish you and Jesus at the same time. Jesus received the penalty and the punishment. He died the death for your propitiation. So when God sees you, he is pleased with you. There is no more wrath because of the cross. All that's left is God's love. Jesus Christ is our propitiation. Which leads to number four, Jesus Christ, he is our righteousness. Second Corinthians, the apostle Paul, he writes, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is what Martin Luther refers to as the great exchange. Theologians will call this double imputation. That at the cross, there is an exchange that takes place. That Jesus takes our worst and he gives us his best. That at the cross, Jesus takes every sin that we've committed, and Jesus gives us his perfect, holy, righteous life. At the cross, Jesus takes our worst, and he gives us his best. That the sin that you have committed is laid on Jesus, and Jesus gives you his sinlessness. The unrighteous deeds you have committed are laid upon Jesus, and Jesus gives you his righteousness. That the worst day of your life, that one thing that you regret more than anything else that you look back on that haunts you and holds you back and hinders you from moving forward in your life, the worst deed, the worst day, the worst thing that you have ever committed, Jesus says, at the cross, I take that and I give you the best day. That the death that we deserve, Jesus reverses it and gives us life we never could earn. This is what righteousness is. 
How can we stand before a just and holy God and be in relationship with him? How can we be declared righteous before the Lord? Because at the cross, Jesus and you trade places and all that's left is your righteousness. That Jesus takes our worst and he gives us his best. At the cross, you are declared righteous. Jesus Christ is your righteousness, which leads to number five, Jesus becomes our justification. Now, most people do not feel as if their life is deserved or worthy of the type of punishment that I've been talking about. You read it and you're like, surely that's not true. All that stuff about hell and judgment and damnation, you're just trying to scare me. I don't believe in that. I'm a good person. I walk my dog, I pay my taxes, I tuck my shirt in, I can keep a job. My life is pretty good. I'm a pretty good person. All that hell stuff, that's, that's old school and primitive. Well, Jesus actually talks about it in Mark as well. He says that hell is a real place. That hell is a real place where the flame never dies and the worm never dies, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, a conscious, eternal torment forever. And you say, well, that's just for, that's just for bad people. You say, I'm a pretty good person. Well, it's really easy to be a good person when you compare yourself to other people. But here's the deal is God doesn't compare you to other people. God compares you to Jesus. And according to the standards of God, you're not perfect. That you have sinned, that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And according to God, the wages of sin is death. That you deserve death because of the sin that has been committed. You say, well, it's really not that big of a deal. Let me ask you a question. Let's think about sin in terms of committing a crime. How many crimes do you have to commit in order to go to prison? One. Have you committed one sin? Guilty. And when you stand before the judge, here's what you can't say. Okay, judge, I know that I committed the crime, but don't you see all of these other really good things that I've done? I mean, what? I, mean I know I got caught this time, but what about all these other times that I've been a really, really good person? You know what the judge says? Doesn't care. And you could try to justify yourself before the judge. But here's the truth is that God is the judge. People say, well, only God can judge me. Yeah, and that should scare you because God is a just judge. God is the judge. He is the just judge. So what are we going to do? In fact, not only are the wages of sin death, but the Bible says that even committing one sin, you pretty much have broken every other law and you're guilty. On every account. You say, well, that's not fair. Doesn't matter. You're not the judge. You don't make the laws. Here's how Paul writes he says this for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. Guilty. The trespass. Hey, we live in Texas. What happens when you trespass? God's more Texan than the rest of us. Shot. For one trespass, one violation, one crime, one sin committed, one transgression, guilty of everything, guilty. So what do we do? Paul continues and he says, he says this, but the free gift, that's grace, my friends, that's the cross, the free gift of God following many trespasses brings justification. Here's what justification means, that God is the judge. And when he's giving out verdicts, it's guilty. And so God himself, the king of glory, gets up off his throne. He walks around the bench, enters into human history, stands right there beside you, and he serves the sentence for death in your place. This is, this is our justification, that Jesus justifies us, that Jesus serves the sentence of death for us. And when you get to heaven... And God asks you, why should I let you in? What are you going to do? Well, I'm a good person. 
What are you going to say? How are you going to plead? Here's what you don't do. You don't say, I'm a good person. Look at all my good deeds. I got 10 years of tax returns. I'm a good person. That's not what you do. You know what you do? Here's what you say. I am guilty and I have nothing within me, but here's all I have. I throw my life and plead the blood of Jesus. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. By the blood of Jesus, I have grace. By the blood of Jesus, I have the free gift that forgives many trespasses. I plead the blood of Jesus over my life. He is my justification. And you know what God's going to say? He's going to drop the gavel and he will say, not guilty. Your sin forgiven, gone. The sentence has been served. Jesus is your justification. This is the meaning of the cross, which we move forward into number six, that Jesus is our ransom. The Bible uses many metaphors for sin. We've seen that is the severing of a relationship. It is the breaking of a law. It is the committing of a crime. But also the Bible uses it in a financial term that it is the accruing of a debt. Here's what sin is. Imagine sin like, like debt. That every time you sin, it's a swipe of the credit card. So you're just swiping the card. And you're walking around your life, and every single day, oh, swipe the card. Okay, every time you think a thought that you should not be thinking, swipe the card. Right, every time you get in a fight with your spouse and you disrespect them, swipe the card. Every time you yell at your kids, swipe the card. Every time you... Gossip about another, swipe the card. Every time you are at work and you're getting paid for surfing Instagram, swipe the card. That's called stealing. And all you're doing every single day is just swiping the card. And here's what they will tell you. If you were to go to financial peace, that that card is a dangerous thing because you don't actually know how much you are spending. See, we think we're good people because we don't check the credit card bill every month. And we think we have way more in our account than we actually do. And every single day, every sin you commit, every day, all you're doing is writing checks that your soul can't cash. Because you will stand before God, and how are you going to pay him back? The debt is too great. And one day, he will collect. This is why it says, give an account. It's not talking about an Xbox account. Or a Facebook account, it is a financial account. You will have a day of reckoning where you must give an account for the debt that you have accrued. How are you going to pay that debt back? It is way too much. You need a ransom. Here's actually how the psalmist says in verse 49, he's looking forward to the prophecy of the coming of Jesus. He says, truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life for the ransom of their life is costly and will never suffice. You cannot afford the debt that you have accrued. You will stand before God and you are bankrupt. You can't do it. It's impossible to pay God back for your life. So here's what he does. He sends a ransom. But God will ransom my soul. That God is going to pay the price. That God is going to purchase you. That God is going to buy you back. That God is going to do it. He will purchase my soul. And he should live on forever and never see the pits. There is a financial way. See, listen, you cannot pay God back. Because Jesus already paid it all. See, the blood of Jesus is the most precious commodity in the world. The blood of Jesus is worth more than rubies or gold or diamonds or silver. The blood of Jesus is worth more than anything that Fort Knox may or may not have. The blood of Jesus is more precious than all of the gold mines, all of the diamond mines in Sierra Leone or in Africa or wherever it's at. It is more valuable than anything else in the world. And one drop of the blood of Jesus pays for the sins of the world. Jesus Christ paid the price. This is why it's so crazy to me that people can think they're going to pay God back. You really think your good deeds will outweigh your bad deeds? You haven't looked at the credit card statements. You think you can do that? Really? You think you're going to get before God and you're going to show him all of the good deeds that you have done? And he's going to say, you know what? That's more worthy than my son. 
Sure, yeah, that's, that's better than Jesus. Look at you, you gave $5 to St. Jude's at CVS. Wow, way to go for you. One time. You think that's gonna pay God back? This is why it's insane to me that people are thinking like, oh, I'm just a good person, I'm a good person. I'm gonna pay God back with my deeds. No, no friends, you cannot pay God back. So here's what he does, he sends Jesus as the ransom and Jesus pays it all. The life of Jesus was a blank check that he signs with his blood. He paid it all, he paid it all, there's nothing left. And you know how much this costs you? Absolutely nothing. It's free, it's a gift, it's called grace, it's free. All you gotta do is receive it, it's available for you. It is the free gift of God and it costs you nothing. You know how much it costs Jesus? Everything, and it was worth it. Jesus Christ, he is our, he is our ransom. Which leads to number seven, Jesus is our redemption. This is actually where we get the name Redemption Church. We didn't come up with the name redemption because it was cool or clever or we thought we could draw in a bunch of millennials who don't tithe. (laughs) No, no, no. We came up with it because it's deeply theological and significant to us. This is really the storyline of the Bible. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And it shows up most prevalent in the book of Exodus. That God's people, they were slaves. That's what sin is. Sin is slavery. The Apostle Paul in Romans 6 talks about sin as being slavery, that we are slaves to sin. Exodus is a visual representation of the spiritual realities that we're in. We are slaves. That Pharaoh is Satan, and Egypt is the world, and slavery and bondage, the shackles and chains are the patterns of life that lead to slavery, to sin, and God hears the cries of his people, and he raises up a prophet named Moses who leads to Pharaoh, and he says, Pharaoh, let my people go, and with a mighty hand, God delivers them from their bondage and shackles and slavery, and he liberates them into the promised land. Well, Jesus comes along, and he does the same thing. In Luke 1, he says that he has come to set the captives free and to bring liberty to those who are bound. This is the proclamation of Jesus, and after his death, burial, and resurrection, the author of Hebrews comes along, and he writes this, Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses. Jesus is our greater Moses. That Jesus comes and he defeats Pharaoh. Jesus comes and he overcomes Egypt. Jesus comes and he liberates us from the sin and shame and guilt and shackles of bondage. And he delivers us, leads us into the promised land with him forever. And Jesus is our greater Moses. Jesus comes and he is our redemption. You are not a slave to sin. You have been set free. Repentance breaks the pattern. Repentance leads to liberation. Repentance and faith in Jesus sets you free. Romans 6 would tell you that we are no longer slaves to sin because we have been set free through Jesus because Jesus is our greater redemption. Which leads to number eight, that Jesus is our Christus victor. You need to understand that this world is not all that there is. Many people struggle with their faith because they think that it's just them and God, but that is not true. There is a third variable at play. His name is Satan. That we find ourselves in the middle of a war. There is light, there is darkness, there is good, there is evil, there is heaven, there is hell, there is God, there is Satan, there are angels, and there are unholy angels. They are known as demons. And you and me, we find ourselves in the middle of a cosmic battle that has been raging since the beginning of time. That's why in the garden we see the serpent show up, and he is a serpent at that time. But as his lies and his influence continues to grow over the millennia, by the time the book of Revelation comes about, he is no longer a serpent, he is a great dragon. And all he wants to do is destroy the church of God. All he wants to do is destroy the people of God. He did it in Genesis. He wants to do it in Revelation. All he wants to do is lie, steal, kill, and destroy. He is a liar, John 8, 44. He is the father of lies, and he comes, and Jesus also calls him a murderer. You need to understand that we are in a battle, but Jesus is the Christus victor. You gotta get it that Jesus is more than just a sacrifice. Jesus is also a soldier. 
that Jesus comes to do battle. Not only is he the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, but he is also the warring God who has overcome the rulers and principalities of this world. For those of you who struggle with demonic accusation, demonic oppression, depression, those of you who struggle with besetting sins and you're bound and you're wondering why on earth is life so hard? I gave my life to Jesus, but it doesn't seem to be making a difference because there's probably a demonic attack against you. As a brand new believer, this is what I struggled with. I gave my life to Jesus at the age of 20. For the first two to three years of my Christian walk, I felt as if God would never use me, and I would lay down at night, and I could not sleep because I was haunted by my past. And I would hear things where it says, God will never use you. God will never love you. After the things that you have done, if people knew who you really were, then they would leave or they would walk away from you. And I felt this over and over. I would hear, you are not loved. You are unworthy. You are unclean. You are unwelcomed. And it wasn't until I realized that those were demonic accusations that I ever have any freedom. It wasn't until I understood the purpose of Christus Victor, that Jesus at the cross, he defeated Satan, that Jesus at the cross, he triumphed over Satan, sin, hell, the death, and the grave. At the cross, Jesus comes as my great warrior who is crowned as the Lord and the King, that he rules and reigns supreme through the cross. In the book of Revelation, we see Jesus returning, and he is no longer a humble Galilean peasant. He is the risen Lord, the King. He comes with a crown and fire in his eyes and a sword in his mouth. He comes riding a white horse with a robe drenched in blood, with a tattoo down his leg that says, King of kings, Lord of lords. He comes to do battle, to crush the head of the serpent, to slit the throat of the dragon, and cast it into the eternal depths of the pits of hell to where he could never torment and never tempt another one of God's children. Jesus is more than just a sacrifice. Jesus Christ is also a soldier. And for those of you who struggle with demonic accusation, let me read you Colossians 2. And I want you to pray through this. Write this on your bathroom mirror. Recite it over yourself before you go to bed tonight. Memorize Colossians 2, 14, where the apostle Paul says, nailing it to the cross. Your sin nailed to the cross. Your shame nailed to the cross. Your addiction nailed to the cross. Your depression nailed to the cross. Your divorce nailed to the cross. The worst day of your life nailed to the cross. The thing that keeps you awake nailed to the cross. See, it's Satan who's reminding you of those things. It's not God. He nailed it to the cross. Why are you reminding God of things he's already forgiven you for? nailed to the cross. It's been done. It's been dealt with. It is finished. It is nailed to the cross. And here's what we see through demonic accusations, nailing it to the cross, disarming the rulers and the authorities and putting them to open shame. You say, Satan, you have no rights in my life. The the, the enemy has no authority in your life. When you hit your feet on the ground, you are a warrior with your boots on doing battle against the enemy of darkness, putting them to open shame and triumphing over them. Triumph, triumph, my friends, triumph. The war has been won. The victory has been won. The battle has been won. Jesus Christ is our victor. It's done. You do not need to worry about the attacks of the enemy. You have the victory through Jesus Christ. Jesus is our Christus victor. Here's also what we see, though, is he understands that many of us are victims, This is the beauty of the cross in what is known as the doctrine of expiation. That not only have we committed sin, but sins have been committed against us. Horrible sins. Tragic sins. Many of you, I cannot even begin to fathom the sins that have been committed on behalf of others towards you. And not only does our sin leave a stain, but the sins that others commit against us also leave what the Bible would refer to as a stain. And what happens is through these sins that have been committed against us, we begin to identify with them. We give them credence. We begin to speak into them, accept them. And what happens is they mark us, they change us, and eventually 
they defile us. To where you feel unwelcomed, unloved, dirty, damaged, defiled. Jesus understands that sin is not only what you have done, but because we live in the world that we live in, many of us have been sinned against horribly. And that it has defiled us. This could be things like the loss of a child at an early age through violence or through death. This could be things like suffering a divorce as a, watching your parents as a small child. One of my wife's first memories was having her hide under the dining room table while her parents screamed. And she carried that with her as a defilement to where she felt like she was rejected by the ones who loved her the most. That is a defilement. We see this also in rape and molestation, and we see it with sexual abuse. We see it at the abuse of a parent, a dad who was supposed to love you, who ended up harming you. It's defilement. And eventually it becomes your identity to where you feel unwelcomed, unworthy, and unclean. I remember early on in our church, there was a young woman, she came to me, and she said, I don't feel like God will ever love me. I said, why would you say that? She said, because of the things that have happened in my life. So it's like, well, let's talk about it. And after several times in the conversation, trying to get it out of her, she eventually said, when I was a little girl, my dad used to molest me. And I felt like I, I deserved it. And he would tell me that this is, you're unloved, and you're un, this is why I'm doing this to you, because you're not worthy of love. And she believed that lie. And it affected every relationship for the rest of her life. She couldn't keep a job. She couldn't have a relationship. She couldn't enter it. She couldn't have friendships with other men. And she was very promiscuous. She would sleep with all these different men, and she couldn't keep a relationship. And she actually had an addiction to drugs and alcohol. Now, most people would just say she's just partying. She's just having a good time. But really what it is, is defilement manifested as partying. It's defilement. This girl is defiled. And she came into agreement with the things that had been done to her. That she was unworthy and unloved. So I sat there with her as she began crying. And I remembered a, a teaching that I heard many years before about the doctrine of expiation. And so I read to her Revelation. And I'll read it to you right now. This is the way that God sees us from heaven's perspective. At the end of the book of Revelation, he says, let us rejoice. You say, how can I rejoice at suffering? How can I rejoice at the sins I have experienced at the hands of another? How can I rejoice, exult, and give him glory? For what? For the marriage of the lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. That's us. We are the bride. If you are in Christ, you are the bride of Christ. You are the church. He says the bride has made herself ready and it was granted to her to clothe herself. When God sees you, he says, it is granted to you. I give to you. I want you to clothe yourself with fine linen, bright and pure, brighter than any white. The radiance of the glory of God shining through you, bright and pure, the fine linen, which is the righteous deeds of the saints. And I, I sat her down, I looked her in the eyes, and I said, here's what we see in the Bible, is that you are not defiled. The cross makes you clean. The stains of sin are washed by the blood of Jesus and that Jesus Christ removes the garments of shame and he gives you a garment of praise. The bride of Christ always wears white. Though sin makes you dirty, though sin makes you defiled, Jesus comes and he removes the garments of shame and he dresses you up in pure linens, finer than anything you can imagine, brighter than any white that you can imagine. He removes the garments of shame and because of the cross, he gives you a garment of praise. You are not defiled. You are declared clean. Because of Jesus. Clean because of Jesus. Clean, clean because of Jesus. He removes the garment of shame. And the bride of Christ always wears white.
So as I was talking to her, her countenance began to change. That God would love me, that God would save me, that God would cleanse me. Yes, because he is your expiation. And that day, she gave her life to Jesus. And then Jesus gave her a garment of praise. Isn't the cross beautiful? Isn't the cross amazing? Does it just make you fall in love with Jesus all over again? That he would do all of this? That he would accomplish all of this through one act on the cross? He would finish everything? He would secure everything? He would do it all? Beautiful. I think we don't think about the cross nearly enough. I don't think we imagine the cross nearly enough. I don't think we comprehend the cross nearly enough. We don't understand the doctrine of expiation. But do you know what? As a church, in a few weeks, we're going to celebrate the doctrine of expiation. Do you know that in a a few weeks, we're going to get to see people who go public with the doctrine of expiation? We actually celebrate expiation several times throughout the year. You know what we call it? Baptism. That's what it is. It is... It is our life buried in that watery grave, and it is a visual representation of Jesus Christ washing away our sins, washing them through the cross, washing them through the blood, removing our old life, giving us new life. It is a celebration of the doctrine of expiation. That's why we get so excited. That's why we get so fired up about Jesus and people going public with life change through Jesus. It is the celebration of expiation. Some of you, you need to celebrate the expiation work of Jesus in your life. It's called baptism in your chair. There is a connect card. If you have not been baptized, be baptized. Fill out the card. Check baptism. We will follow up with you, and we will give you a new shirt with a garment of praise to celebrate the doctrine of expiation happening in your life. Which leads us to the last point. Jesus is our Christus exemplar. Jesus is more than just an example, but he is not less than an example. Jesus is a healer, he is a miracle worker, he is our Lord, our Savior, he is more than an example, but at the same time, he is not less than an example. This is what discipleship is following after Jesus because he is our Christus exemplar. So I want to go back to the beginning of the text. Here's what we see in Mark. As we read it, and they, those are the disciples. That's you and that's me. That's the 12. That's every Christian for the last 2,000 years. We were all on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus is walking ahead of us. And they were amazed and those who followed were afraid. They were amazed because they've seen Jesus do amazing things. But they were afraid because they still did not understand the meaning of the cross and why Jesus came. And many of us, we find ourselves in the same place that the disciples are on the road to Jerusalem, not understanding the meaning of the cross. And you know what Jesus does? He doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't Say, guys, come on. I told you this three times already. Do you still not get it? No, here's what he does. He takes another moment. He stops, and he says, just follow me. See, a lot of you, you're trying to figure it all out. You don't need to. You just need to follow him. You have to have all of the answers in place. No, you don't. You just got to follow him. Jesus sits down with the disciples and says, you do not understand what is about to happen. You don't get it, but don't worry, because one day you will. In the meantime, just follow me. Be with me, be like me, be my disciple. Just follow after me. And the disciples on that road, here's what they thought. I don't know why we're going to Jerusalem, but I believe in you enough that I'm gonna follow you anyway. I'm gonna trust in you, I'm gonna obey you, and I'm gonna follow you. And I may not understand everything, but one day I will. This is really the call of discipleship that you may not understand everything, but one day you will. That's why the gospel is simple enough for a child, but it is deep enough for a scholar. Because none of us will know everything, but the call to all of us is just to follow him. This is the same conversation I had with my daughter. She said, Daddy, why does Jesus have to die? I said, baby girl, if you only understood the question you are asking right now. 
And I would love to tell you why Jesus had to die. Baby girl, I would love to tell you about the penal substitutionary atonement of Christ on the cross. I would love to tell you about the new covenant sacrifice. I would love to be able to tell you about the propitiating work of Jesus in your place. I would love to be able to tell you about the expiation and the ransom and the justification. I would love to be able to explain to you the mysteries and the beauty and the wonder of the cross, but you're three. And you don't get it. But you know what? Sometimes your daddy doesn't get it either. That you could be following Jesus for 50 years and you still don't get it. I said, baby girl, if you only understood. But one day, you will. In the meantime, let's just pray. And let's just follow Jesus because one day you will understand the meaning of the cross. It is simple enough for a child, but at the same time, it is deep enough for a scholar. You can read this, and you will never get to the depths of the beauty of the gospel and the glory of the cross. So here's what I want to do to close. I want to make the simple gospel simple. We've been deep today, so here's what I want to do. I want to close by reading the Jesus Storybook Bible. This is the story that started the conversation with Esther, and I, I believe it can do a better job of explaining it because it's already taken me an hour to do this. You see, sin has come into God's perfect world, and it will never leave. God's children would be always running away and hiding in the dark. Their hearts would break and never work properly again. God couldn't let his children live forever, not in such pain not without him. There was only one way to protect them. You will have to leave the garden now, God told his children, his eyes welling up with tears because this is no longer your true home. It is not the place for you anymore. But before they left the garden, God made clothes for his children to cover them. He gently covered them and he sent them away on a long, long, long journey out of the garden and away from their home. In any other story, that would be all that there is and the story would be over, and we would close with the end. But this is not that kind of story. That God loves his children too much to let the story end there. That even though he knew that he would suffer, God had a plan, a magnificent dream. One day, he would get his children back. One day, he would make the world their perfect home again. And one day, he would wipe away every tear from their eyes. You see, no matter what, in spite of everything, God loves his children. He loves them with a never stopping and never giving up and unbreaking always and forever love. And though they would forget him and they would run from him deep in their hearts, God's children would miss him always and long for him, lost children who are longing for their home. So before they left the garden, God whispered a promise to Adam and Eve, it will not always be so. I will come and I will rescue you and I will do it. And when I do, I'm going to do battle against the great snake and I'll get rid of sin and dark and I will get rid of the sadness that is in your heart. I'm coming back for you. And one day he would, one day God himself would come. This is the simple gospel. This is the story of the Bible. You may not understand it all, but one day you will. Well, thanks again for tuning in with us here at Redemption Church. If this message was helpful to you in any way, leave a review, like, comment, or share with your friends to help others experience life change through Jesus. Oh.